All right, well, that video tells you that we're back in Nehemiah. We took a couple of uh, week break for Easter, and then, man, didn't you enjoy the baptism and prayer service last week? I thought that was just fantastic. Um, yeah, it was, it was excellent. Um, and we'll probably do it again. Um, but this week we're in Nehemiah 10, and let me just tell you where we're going. Next week and the week after that, Adam's going to preach on the last three chapters of Nehemiah. And then after that, we'll say goodbye to Nehemiah, at least for a while. Um, but today we're in 10, and Nehemiah is a book that we've, we've called our series Lead the Way. And it's a leadership book, and it focuses on different aspects of how Nehemiah led. And one of the things we know about leaders is they're always learning. And it amazes me that in the last 15 years or so, one of the ways that leaders have been learning more and more is through podcasts. So I'm curious, how many of you are podcast listeners? Raise your hand. That's pretty good. It's about half of you. It's about the national average, actually, that about half of Americans are currently listening to podcasts. Um, I did a little bit of research, and this is what I found. Right now, there are over 700,000 podcasts available. And that number less than a year ago was only 500,000. That means that podcasts are coming online at a rate of 22 per hour. And those 700,000 podcasts have generated more than 2.3 million episodes. At an average of 20 minutes per episode, that means there's more than 90 years of content if you listened full time. So knowing that you're not going to get to all of it and knowing that you have different things that you're interested in, I thought I would tell you about some of the podcasts that I enjoy. Um, the first one I'll talk about is one called The West Wing Weekly. Now in 2012, I discovered the show The West Wing. Yes, some of you are laughing because you know that it was off the air for six years by that point. I'm a little bit slow. But the podcast, The West Wing Weekly, is going episode by episode, one episode a week, and talking about the particular episode of that TV show. And they'll interview the actors from it, or the director, or the producers, and they'll just have an interesting discussion about it. Another one that you might be interested in, if West Wing is not your speed, is um, the J.R.R. Tolkien podcast. It's called The Legendarium, and this this podcast is going chapter by chapter through The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, some of you would be really interested in that. Others of you would rather go to the dentist. I understand. <laughs> How about politics? So one of my favorite politics podcasts is called the 538 Politics Podcast. Now, I like it for a couple of reasons. One, it focuses more on predicting what's going to happen than actually editorializing on what has already happened. You can get enough of that. But the other thing is it's hosted by a panel, including a guy named Nate Silver. And Nate Silver wrote the book, The Signal and the Noise, which deals with forecasting everything from elections to earthquakes and baseball to bankruptcies. It's really interesting stuff. But there's more in podcasts than just television shows and books and the craziness that's going on in Washington. In fact, if you're a leader and you're hungry for information, there's an absolute smorgasbord of leadership podcasts. For example, there's the John Maxwell Leadership Podcast. Now, some of you remember the 
the grandfather of podcasts, the predecessor of podcasts, which was the Cassette Mail Order Tape Club. <laughs> and so I'm curious, besides me, are there any former members of the John Maxwell Maximum Impact Cassette Tape Club? Anyone? That explains why I paid so much for it, because <laughs> you guys weren't helping defray the costs at all. Thanks. Um, there's the Andy Stanley Leadership Podcast. There's a couple of guys you probably have heard of. I also listen to the Kerry Neuenhoff Leadership Podcast and the Craig Groeschel Leadership Podcast. And honestly, these are guys that I'd never heard of until Adam suggested listening to their podcast. And now I love them. They're excellent. Now, those are all good. Oh, wait, there's one more. The Arthur Brooks Show. I just wanted to tell you about this one because Arthur Brooks, his podcast is kind of at the interface of politics and leadership. And he wrote a book recently called Love Your Enemies, where in the podcast and the book, he takes up the question of what would it look like if we took Jesus' command to love our enemies and applied it to the political discourse that we have in our country today. I know, right? So, so if you're interested in that, I highly recommend Brooks' book, Love Your Enemies, or checking out his podcast. It's really interesting. Those are all good. But my favorite podcast right now is one called Five Leadership Questions. And the format's pretty simple. It's hosted by Todd Atkins and Daniel M. And they get an interview, they get a uh, guest on the show, and they interview them by asking five leadership questions. And sometimes those questions change, but most episodes, they focus on these five. Let me share them with you. Number one, who are you currently learning from? And I like this question because it has an assumption underneath it, and the assumption is that leaders are always learning from someone. Question number two, in addition to prayer and reading scripture, what do you do every day? Two assumptions in this question. One, it assumes that leaders are spending time daily in prayer and reading scripture. And the second assumption is that in addition to those, leaders lead disciplined lives where they do important things every day or almost every day that make a difference. Question number three, what does leadership look like at home? It acknowledges that we don't stop being leaders when we're done with our day job. In fact, failure to lead at home has led to some of the most disastrous collapses of leaders, hasn't it? Question number four, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self about leadership? Now, most of the guests that Daniel and Todd have on their show are like me in their 50s or older. And so it's really interesting to hear them answer this question because the answers always contain really interesting advice for young leaders. Things that we older guys wish we had learned when we were in our 20s. And finally, they end with, what is your current leadership focus? Now, I love these questions. And I think that asking really good questions and then listening deeply to the answers is a great way to get to know people and to, to go deeply in a relatively short time. And so, because part of my job here at the church involves leadership development and leadership partnership with the people that are leading throughout our ministries and, and from our congregation in the community, I would love 
to use these questions to start a leadership conversation with you. Here's how I want to do it. Here's an email address. It's Kevin plus 5LQ at efree.org. If you send me a message to Kevin plus 5LQ at efree.org through the magic of Google and Gmail, you will get an immediate response back with a link to a form with those five questions. I would love for this to be a start of many leadership conversations where we can get to know each other and go deep on how God is using us as leaders. Now, some of you I can see are already taking your phones out and taking pictures of the screen. That's a good way to do it. I've asked um, Tyler in the booth to put that slide up after we're finished with the service, so maybe you can remember and, and grab that then. I'm serious about this. I would love to hear from you. Another leader that I would love to hear from and, and that we're trying to learn about is Nehemiah. And a few weeks ago as I was listening to a, a, one of the episodes of the Five Leadership Questions podcast, I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool if Daniel and Todd would just book Nehemiah on their show? That would that'd be really cool. And then we could hear how Nehemiah answered those questions. So what I have here is the totally fabricated transcript <laughs> of Nehemiah's appearance on the Five Leadership Questions podcast. And I've already arranged for a volunteer named Ben Thomas. He didn't know he was volunteering. That would be really mean of me. And Ben, if you would just grab this microphone and come on up. We'll do a little reader's theater for you, and you can get a taste of Nehemiah on the Five Leadership Questions podcast, okay? Um, there's your script, and you're going to read Todd, which is the name of the, okay? Got it. Yeah. Um, now, before the service, Ben actually offered to do the interview from the voice of Larry the Cucumber. And I got to tell you, I, I'm, I'm open to this. Um, let's, let's try the first question as Larry the Cucumber, and then we'll decide, okay? Okay. Get, get it in your... Okay. Let's drive into our first question. <laughs> Who are you learning from? Maybe Maybe we'll use Ben's voice. It's a little distracting. It's a little but, but thank you. Okay. Um, I know. But, I mean, in this interview, there's some serious leadership points that I want to draw out, and I think that might distract a yeah. bit. Okay. Why don't you try that again as Ben? Okay. Okay. Let's dive into our first question. Who are you learning from? Well, Todd, thanks for having me on the podcast. Among the people that I'm learning from, I'd have to say that Ezra comes first. From the moment that I got to Jerusalem, he's been a generous mentor and friend, and you know that he led an earlier group of our people back to Jerusalem. And he was tremendously effective at finishing the temple and reestablishing the worship of God that had fallen away. I don't know what I would have done without the encouragement of more experienced leaders like Ezra. I'm also learning from my team. I'm lucky to work with some really great people. Now, in past administrations, some of the leaders were clearly using their position to take advantage of the people and to line their own tunics if you know what I mean. 
But my assistants, including my brother Hannah and I, are committed to the best for all of the people. And I'm also spending a great deal of time reading the books of Moses. And finally, I have to say that I'm learning from all of the people by listening closely to their concerns and challenges. That's great. Wow, it sounds like you're learning all the time. Besides reading God's law and spending daily time in prayer, what do you do every day? Well, in addition to my governing duties, I spend some time each day writing. In fact, I'm working on a leadership book right now. I also write letters to my friends back in the Citadel of Susa. I plan to go back there at some point and resume my work for King Artaxerxes. The king has been tremendously supportive of the work here in Jerusalem. Well, that's great. What does leadership look like for you at home, though? Well, it's busy. I mean, every day my leadership responsibilities follow me home. On an average day, I host dinner for more than 150 Jews and government officials, and that doesn't count the steady stream of visitors from neighboring nations. And boy, can they eat. <laughs> In one day, we go through an entire ox, a half a dozen sheep, and a bunch of chickens. And every 10 days or so, we have to restock the wine cellar with lots of different kinds of wine. Well, that certainly sounds like a great party. My fourth question is, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self about leadership? I think if I was going to talk to 20-year-old Nehemiah, I would say don't be surprised at what God, where God leads you. It might feel like you have it all figured out right now with a path of advancement within King Artaxerxes' kingdom. I know you aspire to that high level of cupbearer, which you think will serve as a capstone on your career. Honestly, Todd, when I was 20 years old, I could only dream of being the cupbearer to the king. It felt like the greatest accomplishment that I would ever be capable of. And when God called me through prayer and the desperate needs of the people of Jerusalem, I had no idea the leadership challenges that lay ahead of me. And so if I could speak to 20-year-old Nehemiah, I think I might say, hold on, young man, because what God has got in store for you is way beyond anything you could ask or imagine. Nehemiah, this has been a great podcast episode. We've got one question left, though. Can you tell us a little bit about your current leadership focus? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, my leadership focus has changed quite a bit in the 12 years that I've been governor of Jerusalem. As you probably know, my first leadership focus was all about getting the wall built. When I got here, the wall was in ruins, and the people were disorganized, and there was really no effort being made to restore the safety and security of the city. Soon after starting the wall on the work on the wall, my leadership focus was forced to shift to the relationships between different groups of people. Now, I suppose in hindsight, this should have been expected. All leaders have to deal with the relationships among their people, as well as the relationships with others outside the wall, as it were. Jerusalem was no exception. What I found interesting was that as soon after resolving some of the internal conflicts, and addressing some of the external conflicts, I realized, mostly with the help of Ezra, that my leadership focus needed to shift again. This time to the relationship between the people and God. Here's the big takeaway for me. I came to see that we could build the wall and we could make peace with each other and we could even resolve all of the conflicts with those in surrounding nations. But if we as a people weren't right with God, then none of my leadership efforts would have amounted to anything of lasting value, nothing at all. So right now, I would have to say that my leadership is squarely focused 
on making sure that the people repair and restore their commitment to God. Now, wouldn't you listen to that podcast? I mean, that's, that's, thank you, Ben. Now, I think it would be really cool if we could actually have Nehemiah here and interview him. And I think if we, if we had him here and we asked him to summarize these middle chapters of his book, it might go something like this. He might say, well, in chapter 8, Ezra reads the law to the people. And the people are convicted of their sins. In fact, they're so convicted that while Ezra is reading the law, they begin to weep. And we had to tell them to stop all the crying because this was not an assembly for the purpose of mourning. It was an assembly to worship God and to celebrate what he's done for us. So they, it wasn't appropriate for them to weep at that time, but they felt so convicted. In chapter 9, the people gather again and we read the law and then they confess their sins. They confess to each other and they confess to God. And... <clears throat> In that confession, they go all the way back to the sins of the people under Moses, and they confess sins all the way through to their present time. And then, naturally following conviction and confession, the people in chapter 10 make a written commitment to follow the law of God. And, and they sign that commitment intending to keep the law from that point going forward. Now, my question for you is, does this sound familiar, this pattern of conviction and confession and commitment? Because for me, it describes my growing up years and my adolescence. You see, I would go to summer camp or I would have a, a special re, um, revival meeting at my church or a guest speaker would come in um, and the preaching effective, the effective preaching of the word would then bring conviction to me and I would end up at the altar alongside a camp counselor or a Sunday school teacher confessing my sins and then I would, I would leave committed to, to do better and try harder. And inevitably, for me, every time I went through that cycle of conviction and confession and commitment, it ended the same way, in collapse. My best intentions, my best efforts ended up failing. And it's not just me. Um, for the last 10 years, I've been working with our high schoolers. And each of those years, or almost each of those years, I've gone to summer camp with the high schoolers. And every year we have a great speaker who brings eight or nine messages during the week of the, the word of God, and, and dozens of high schoolers are convicted of their sins. And they confess their sins to each other and to their, their leaders and to God. And every year, the buses are full of young men and women who are committed to trying harder and doing better. But as the summer leads into the fall, many of those students admit to their small groups that those commitments they made at camp have collapsed. Their best efforts to, to do what they had committed to have been unsuccessful. Now, before I go for, further, I don't want you to think 
that I have anything but love and appreciation for our summer camps. In fact, this is a short commercial in the middle of the message. If you haven't signed your student up for our junior high camp or our summer high camp, now's the time. Right, Don? Now's the, yes. Do it this week. Because every year, we share with the students the alternative to this painful cycle of conviction, confession, commitment, and collapse. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself in the message. All I want to do right now is ask you to commit to signing your kids up, your students up for camp. And you guys, get your parents to sign you up, okay? Good. All right. So we've talked about my experience in this cycle, and we've talked about um, what I've seen with the high schoolers at camp. And I mentioned that, that one of my podcast favorites was about prediction and forecast. So I'm curious how you would forecast the success of the Israelites in the commitments they're going to make in chapter 10. Um, yeah. What I want to do is look at three main sections of their commitment. And then we'll look at how they did in keeping that. Um, the, the three... Just hold on a second. Okay. Let's take a look at three specific commitments. Um, you guys are going to miss a whole section that I was supposed to do and I didn't do. But you won't miss it. Go back and watch the first hour. Um, <laughs> it's all right. It's okay. Um, what I didn't tell you when I was supposed to tell you was that I was just having so much fun with Ben that I just got lost in the talk. Um, that, that whole first section of chapter 10 has 84 people that signed on to these commitments. And then there are these two verses, 28 and 29, that talk about um, all of the different groups that said, God, in fact, pull up, pull up the slide to verse 28 and 29. Let's hit that. So in 28 of chapter 10, it says the rest of the people, priests and Levites, let's go back to that. The rest of the people, priests and Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and their sons and daughters, who are able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. Now, it's worth going back to that, because I want you to understand, they committed themselves with an oath and under a curse. They really meant these commitments. They had every intention of following them. Here are some of the specific commitments that they made. And I've called them the commitment to relational purity, the commitment to worship, and the commitment to stewardship. Let's take a look at chapter 10 and see those. So the first one, the commitment to relational purity in verse 30, Nehemiah says, 
The people say, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. The second promise is the promise to worship. And specifically here, keeping the Sabbath and other holy days of worship. Verse 31 says, When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, which was the day of worship, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any other holy day. And the third promise, the third commitment, was to faithful stewardship. Verse 37 says, Moreover, when we bring we will bring to the storeroom of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all of our trees and of all our new wine and olive oil, and we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. So, how did the Israelites do in keeping these promises? Well, there are a couple of sources where we could find out. The first thing we could do is flip over to chapter 13 of Nehemiah. And in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is going to describe how each of these commitments collapse. But in two weeks, Adam is going to preach on chapter 13. And frankly, I think it's bad form to step on your boss's future messages. <laughs> A little bit later in the message, I'm actually going to quote from Adam which I hope is really good for him. The other reason that we won't go to chapter 13 today is because there's actually a more direct source for how the Israelites did in keeping these commitments. They made the promises to God, and so we can consult God directly. You see, Nehemiah and the prophet Malachi were actually contemporaries. Now, it's hard to tell that from the arrangement of books in our Bible because Nehemiah is earlier in the Old Testament and Malachi is the, the last book in the Old Testament. But Nehemiah represents the last of the history books for Israel. Those books that, that, that tell the story of the history of Israel. And Malachi represents the last of the prophets speaking directly for God to the people of Israel. And so what that means is those guys actually lived at the same time. And the prophecy of Malachi is dated to just the few years after Nehemiah chapter 10 and these promises that the people have made to God. And it's really interesting. I would encourage you to do that maybe this afternoon. Go and read chapter 10 and then read the four chapters of, ne of the prophecy of Malachi. And you go, oh my goodness. Let's look at just three places where Malachi, God speaking through his prophet Malachi, actually seemed to address exactly the promises that the people of Israel made. The first one is in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. And here I see God addressing the promise of relational purity. God says, you cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? And I'll tell you why. Because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young, but you have been unfaithful to her. Though she remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Clearly, God's pointing out that the Israelites have failed to keep their promises of relational purity. The second pledge they made, remember, was to honor God in worship. 
And judging from Malachi 1, 6, and 7, they haven't done a great job here either. God says, but you ask, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? You defiled them by saying, the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. And what about that third promise of faithful stewardship? Well, in maybe the most preached passage in the book of Malachi, it addresses that pretty clearly. God says, should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due me. You are under a curse, for your whole nation has been cheating me. And when God says you are under a curse, we've got a pretty good idea of what curse that is. It's the one that in Nehemiah 10, they had promised an oath under when they had committed to faithful stewardship. The Israelites have failed to live according to their promises. And God has taken notice, and he's called them out through his prophet Malachi. The end. Well, the end of the Old Testament. Right? That is, that is both the end of the people speaking in Nehemiah, and it's the end of God speaking in Malachi. Well, it's almost the end. In fact, in the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, both chronologically and positionally, in Malachi 4, we get a promise from God that reads like an end scene after the credits in a Marvel movie. And, and it gives us a glimpse of what's coming. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, it says, But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves led out to pasture. There is hope, and there's a future. This isn't really the end. And we know that that hope and that future are Christ. So you and I have the benefit of the Gospels, which tell us about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We have the benefit of the rest of the New Testament, including the letters of Paul that tell us the importance and the impact of that life and death and resurrection of Jesus. For example... Paul, in his letter to the Romans, in chapter 7, seems to summarize that cycle of conviction and commitment, conviction, confession, commitment, and collapse pretty succinctly. In chapter 7, he says, and I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. And you can see clearly conviction. I want to do what is right. I don't want to do what is wrong. You can hear the confession, but I can't. But I do it anyway. And there's more than a hint of commitment and collapse. As he says, I keep on doing this over and over again. This passage in chapter 7 of Romans 
is being used by Paul to set up the contrast between life under the sinful nature and life in the spirit of Christ. In fact, if, if we go to chapter 8, he spells it out very clearly. He says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under control of their sinful natures can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. The Spirit of God living in you, the Spirit of God living in me, makes all the difference. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, the Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. They hope that by being good, they'll please God if there is one, or if there's not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside him. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. I love that. God will make us good because he loves us. If you were here at Easter, you heard Adam preach on the meaning behind baptism. And I'll admit to thinking that was kind of a weird topic for an Easter Sunday morning. Until he got to the point where he, he showed the connection between John, 1 John 1, 9 and the meaning of baptism and the work of Christ in our lives. 1 John 1, 9 says, But if we confess our sins to him, Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. I remember on Easter, Adam asking, who does the cleansing? It's not us, it's Jesus. Jesus is faithful to forgive, and Jesus is faithful to cleanse us. Here's how Adam put it. A lot of us spend a lot of time and energy working as hard as we can to make ourselves pure, to get rid of the sin in our lives, to overcome bad habits, as Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, that's my job. I'm the one who can cleanse you, not you. Surrender that problem to me and watch what I can do. And it's like a bubbling stream of living water constantly purifying us from the inside out. It's Christ and his work in our lives that can break that cycle of commitment and collapse. That cycle of try harder and do better and replace it with a cycle of cleansing. The Holy Spirit still convicts us of our sins, and we're still called to confess those sins, but now that conviction and confession create new opportunities to turn control over to the Holy Spirit living within us. They create new opportunities to trust fully in Christ, to forgive us and to cleanse us. For me, this happened in my fourth year of college. I was completely frustrated with my repetitive cycles of commitment and collapse. And I remember surrendering everything to Christ and asking him to take over. I knew that I couldn't be good or become clean 
in my own power. Now that was more than 30 years ago, and the job's not finished yet. But it is a continual cycle of Christ's control and the Spirit's work in my life. And what I've found is that this cleansing affects every area of our lives. Christ's cleansing affects our relational purity as we start to love others the way that Christ loved us. Christ's cleansing affects our worship as we become the temples of the Holy Spirit. And Christ's cleansing affects our faithful stewardship as cheerful giving replaces compulsion and reluctance. As we live a life controlled by the Spirit, we recognize more and more that God is making us good because he loves us. This makes all the difference for us as Christians. And it makes all the difference for us as leaders. Since we started the message with a discussion of leadership questions, I want to end with one more central leadership question. You as leaders, how are you leading the people that follow you? Are you leading them to struggle to keep their commitments like some sort of spiritual law enforcement? Or are you leading them to increasingly turn over their lives to Christ and let Jesus do the cleansing in their lives? I love the way Paul David Tripp puts it. He's writing a book called Parenting and addressing that leadership between parents and children, but I've paraphrased it here to apply to all leaders. The law cannot and will not rescue, redeem, and restore those you lead. But that's exactly what everyone you need, lead needs. So if you're not going, if, sorry, if you are going to be a tool of change in God's hands, in the lives of those you lead, you need more than God's law in your personal leadership toolbox. And what is it that we leaders need in our leadership toolbox? Nothing less than the Spirit of God cleansing and transforming us. J. Oswald Sanders says it very bluntly. There's no such thing as a self-made spiritual leader. A true leader influences others spiritually only because the Spirit works in and through him to a greater degree than to those he leads. That's what we need as followers of Christ. And that's what we need as leaders. As we prepare for communion, let's set our hearts on Christ and his faithfulness to forgive us and to cleanse us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are faithful and just. You have freed us from a cycle of commitment and collapse, and you will be faithful to complete the good work that you've begun in us. Help us to surrender daily, God, to your spirit within us. Help us to remember your body and blood that purchased us into your family. Help us as leaders to constantly bring those who follow closer to you, closer to your forgiveness and into experiencing your cleansing. And Jesus, help us to turn all of the glory back to you. Amen.